Welcome to the Beach Grove United Methodist Church Podcast, where you can hear our Sunday morning sermons in audio form and take them wherever you go. A reminder that if you want to watch the entire service, our services are available on our YouTube channel linked in the podcast notes. We would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast so that new sermons come into your feed as soon as they are available, and you can do this using your favorite podcasting app. We would love it if you would help to support the missions and ministries here at Beach Grove through your tithes and your offerings. A donation link is also linked in the notes below. And lastly, find us on Facebook and Instagram to follow along with all the fun things happening at Beach Grove, whether you live in Suffolk, Virginia or not. We hope you enjoyed this week's message, and please don't forget to share it with others. reading this morning from the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the curse of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of God for the children of God. Thanks be to God. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. Lord, that as we dive into this holy season of Lent, that our hearts and spirits would be focused on perfecting ourselves in your love, knowing that your love is always there growing and yearning for it, that we may both live and reside and share it with others. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so when, when I was growing up, when I was a, a youth in the church, I loved communion. I loved uh, coming up and, and getting the, the piece of bread. I loved uh, being that one kid who would uh, dip their entire hand in the, in the chalice. That's Hint, friends, that's why we uh, don't practice uh, what is known as intinction. That's the dipping of the breaths. Uh, We might stay away from that for a little bit longer in this uh, COVID era. 
Uh, but I remember going up there being so excited about the bread, being so excited about the juice, being so excited to have this interaction with the pastor and with Jesus and to have that time. And yet there was this air of mysteriousness within it. I could never fully explain why I loved communion so much, but there was just something about it more than just, you know, in the middle of church, hey guys, we got some food. <laughs> no, it like it, it literally was more than that for me, but I could never explain why it was more than that. It was always this mysteriousness that I felt like something was happening in the midst of the meal, something that was working within me, hint, hint. Well, then I went to seminary and I began to learn more. I began to dive deeper into, in, as I began to dive deeper in my master of divinity, and I began to more lear, learn more and more about theology as I began to take specific classes directed towards theology of the church. And um, I became one of those really nerdy folks who likes to use all of the big words. I began to want to dive deeper into the sacraments of the church. I remember sitting in my corporate worship class and having a section talking about sacraments, talking about baptism and communion, and beginning to feel that sense of overwhelming joy again as I learned about what these meant. And yet, my worship professor still talking not about the actual meaning, it seemed like, but the mysteriousness that comes with these meals, that comes with these sacraments that comes with these times in which we gather together as a community to be a part of this work and experience of God. But there was always something particularly drawing about communion. I felt it never got old. It never lacked in its luster. It always had this deep and this wonderful meaning. And every time I received those elements, I felt as if God was working within me for the good of the kingdom. Now, in the United Methodist Church, we have two sacraments. We have baptism and we have communion. Now, uh, we, we only have two. If you go and you look at uh, other denominations, other uh, groups in the church, there, there might be more. Other groups in the church might also not actually believe in sacraments. And we'll talk about what a sacrament is in a little bit. Um, but if you want more information on that, I'm glad to have that conversation with you. Or uh, honestly, sometimes a, a simple Google search will tell you what the sacraments are in each of the different denominations around the world. But noticing and viewing baptism and communion as sacraments in the church, we come to this time here during Lent, and I thought it might be beneficial for us to dive deeply into one of these sacraments, namely communion. You see, the basis for this series actually started from a class that I took in seminary. We were tasked with creating something that represented the sacrament to either create a sermon series, to create a Bible study, to create a work of art, to create something that helped to help folks learn about the sacraments. Now, being the worshipful preacher pastor that I am, I'm not much of an artist. I, I am a musician, but I just didn't feel like writing music right in that moment. Um, but being the p pastor preacher that I am, I thought that I would write a sermon series. And that's, that's where the basis of this series started. And I have actually done this series at each one of my appointments. But it got me thinking when we started talking and having conversations with some people here in the church around our weekly practice of communion, 
uh, it got me thinking about how much more we could learn about this sacrament as we gather together. You see, I think as a church, we've, we often, in, in a couple of ways, become disillusioned to that mysteriousness, to that changing, to that transformational understanding of communion. And, and, and oftentimes we could, be, uh, we could be guilty of going one way or the other, right? We could be guilty of not treating it as the sacred and holy meal that uh, it was instituted to be through scripture and through tradition, Or sometimes we may even slingshot all the way to the other side, and it may seem like such a holy experience that oftentimes we misunderstand what is truly at the base of this meal. And so I thought to myself, in the conversations that we were having with some of the folks and with several other folks, that it might be an opportunity for us to dive deeper together as a congregation, and learn more about this sacred act that we have in the church. Learn what it is about and learn what is behind it. And so we are going to, in the midst of this Lenten season, over the next seven weeks, I believe it is, um, you think I would know this by year nine of pastoral ministry, but uh, alas, sometimes the numbers escape me, we will dive deeply into this meal. Learning more about it, learning more about its presence within our worship service, and hopefully at the other end, coming to a deeper understanding as a community together. Because my hope for this is that each and every time you all would come forward for communion, that you would feel that same spirit and that same feeling that not just I, but the disciples experienced when they dined with our Lord and Savior in that Last Supper. We're going to work our way through our United Methodist Liturgy, which is there in your hymnal, right there on pages, uh, I believe it's 8 through 11 in your hymnal. And so if you want a a quick glance at probably where we'll be heading, uh, it is right there. And, you know, I had hoped that we would have an opportunity to also work through our church's doctrine on community. And um, that will probably be coming later this spring after Easter. Um, just with the Easter egg factory, sometimes it's a little bit harder to have a, have a study or have a Bible study uh, that can be inclusive. I don't want to take away from all the volunteers in the factory. But to begin, and before we dive into our liturgy, there is one important thing that we have to cover. There is one thing, probably above all the other aspects of communion, that we need to discuss, because this idea and this topic will drive the very meal that we celebrate each and every time we gather around the sacred table. And that is grace. A simple five-letter word, and yet whose meaning and implication goes far beyond anything that we could ever expect. You see, in our doctrine in the United Methodist Church, we write that sacraments are signs or acts, which include actions and physical words, actions and physical elements. They both express and convey the gracious love of God. They make God's love both visible and effective. We might even say that sacraments are God's show and tell, communicating with us in a way that we, in all our brokenness and limitations, can receive and experience God's grace. And so the question then comes to us. If we believe that God in Christ is at the center of the meal of communion, and we believe that through that, grace is conveyed, then what is grace? 
Well, luckily we have uh, these great and wonderful theologians of Scripture and throughout the ages that help us to understand this. And so uh, if you look in your notes there, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right there at the bottom, Paul gives us a nice little encapsulated definition of grace. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what has, been, has made us created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And then even to go into our, again, United Methodist doctrine and our church doctrine, grace is the love and mercy given to us by God because God wants us to have it, not because of anything we have done to earn it. Amen? Amen. Do you understand grace? <laughs> All right, so let's, let's break that down a little bit more broadly. So let's break that down, both of those definitions that we have, both from Paul and in our own church doctrine. We first learn that it is by grace that we are saved. That it is, it is by God's grace that we experience salvation. We also learn that it is a gift that we have done nothing to deserve. That feels kind of weird, doesn't it? In fact, not only do we not deserve it, sometimes we even work against the grace that God offers us. And yet, God still offers us grace. We learn that it is not even our good works that impact the grace we receive from God. So even when we do good things, God does not somehow love us more. But Paul does note that because of grace... And because of God's love in our lives, we are driven to do those good works. And so grace is a byproduct of faith. Grace is a byproduct of a loving creator who wanted creation to be in love with the creator. Grace is the love of God that has been shed forth upon us that has no stipulations, no rhyme, no reason, no understanding. It is sheerly the nature of life that God has offered to each and every one of us. It's not something we earn, but it is something by being a created being, by being a human being, that God loves us. And so rather than trying to identify what grace is, Paul actually starts by identifying what grace is not. By saying that you were dead through trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among you, those who are disobedient. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, because by grace we have been saved. We often say that life, with, or life without Christ is death, but a life with Christ is eternal life. And when we think about a life without God's grace, we think about a life that is shrouded in darkness in which we can know, neither know nor understand love in its true and genuine state. Paul is saying that God has offered uh, to, uh, grace to us and that our lives are enriched and made better through God's presence, fully expressed in this, this, this being of Jesus Christ who comes down and loves unconditionally all who come across his path. And in the same way, God loves each and every one of us. And it's difficult to understand because 
In our own nature as humans, we often think that love is something that has to be earned. Trust, respect are things that have to be earned. And yet God is offering this free. From the moment we take our first breath, from the moment before we are even born, God loves us. And God loves us for all of eternity with no strings attached. And this is what is happening in this meal of communion. Right? It is both a reminder and an experience in which we know and see and experience God's love in our lives through a meal with Jesus Christ. And so we look at what grace looks like in our lives. And as we look at our own history and tradition, we see that especially here in the Wesleyan doctrine, we see that grace manifests itself in three different ways. And this is often how John Wesley would describe the feelings of grace. And if you look through the history and tradition of the church, you will see similar understandings of how grace is experienced. And so many of you all will have heard me talk about these ways of grace. You have prevenient grace, or what is also known as preventing grace. This is the grace of God that comes before all. This is the grace of God that comes before our own understanding of who God is, before our own knowledge or understanding or acceptance of God with in our lives. It is this nature that God loves us before we could ever know or imagine what love is. And God loves us even when we refuse God's love. God loves us even in our deepest and darkest times when we feel we are unlovable. God loves us in all ways and in all places. Provenient means to come before And it signifies this understanding that before we ever do anything, God's love is there. In every decision that we make, in every place that we go, whether we are happy with God or angry with God, which yes, happens sometimes, God is there and God loves us and God's grace is shed upon us. The next grace that we talk about is justifying grace. Sometimes this grace is also coupled with what is called convicting grace. And it is this understanding that even with God's presence all around us, right? There's, so so here's, here's the caveat here. There's, there's one grace, just like there's one God, right? There's one grace. But we've named the different ways in which we often experience that one grace. And so we use these words like pervenient or justifying or the next one that we'll get to in a minute to name and to understand more deeply how we experience it. And so when we talk about justifying grace, we say to ourselves, God, I know that you love me. I know that you have always loved me and I recognize that love in my life. And when I often talk about baptism in the church, baptism being, being one of those really visual signs and acts of that inward understanding of grace in a justifying manner, we, we often talk about it as accepting God's love, right? No, there is no accepting, but there is a recognition that God loves us and saying, hey, God, I not only want to know that your love is there, but God, I want to reciprocate that love. I want to offer that love back to you, and I want to take that love that you have offered to me, and I want to offer it to other people in creation. 
I want to be a part of this great and wonderful kingdom that you are creating, this great and wonderful place of heaven that you are bringing to here on earth. And friends, we call that justifying grace. We call that the grace that justifies us, that brings us into relationship with God, that brings us into right relationship with God so that we can grow and mature in that love and grace, which leads us to this understanding of salvation and what we call sanctification. I know, big word. I'm sorry. I I try not to use them all too much, but they just come out sometimes. But I'd like for you all to understand them. And so then we have sanctification, this idea that grace sanctifies us, grace perfects us, grace works within us to teach us and to help us learn about who God is so that in our lives, in our faith, in our living, we are beginning to look more and more like the God who created us, that we begin to uncover this image of God that is within each and every one of us, that not only would we live like God, but that we would love like God. So that when even that even when that person makes us angry or upset, we would forgive them. We would live in a state of holy and perfect love. And as John Wesley talks about it, he says, by perfection, Wesley did not mean that we would not make mistakes or have weaknesses. Rather, he understood it to be the continual process of being made perfect in our love of God and each other and of removing our desire of sin and evil. And so we know that God always loves us. We, in understanding and seeing God's love in our lives, have made a covenant with God to continue to work on that relationship, to be in relationship with God. And thereby, by being in that relationship, we have also sought to sanctify ourselves, to make ourselves more perfect in love, So that as we go throughout the world, we can embody this God that we believe in. So when we talk about communion, we begin to dive deeply into what it actually is. So the historic definition of a sacrament in the church was defined by a man named Augustine who lived in northern Africa many, 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 many centuries ago. And he kind of came up with the first cohesive definition of a sacrament, which is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Some of you may have heard this understanding before. I know I've talked about it before. And as time developed and the Reformation began to uh, adapt and adjust and continue, and as we continued to learn and grow in our understanding of God... Many folks began, especially Wesley, began to add an addendum after that. That not only are these outward signs of an inward and spiritual grace, but also they are a means by which that grace is received. And so because God is present through Christ and flows through us, this meal is a chance for us to dine with Christ. To receive the gifts that Christ offers to us. And, and we'll get there when we start looking at the Last Supper. That Christ not only offers himself, but offers the very being and presence of God through the meal. To each and every one of us. So that we can take that very being and presence of God with us into the world. That's what we talk about when we talk about that mystery of communion. That feeling 
that many of us feel when we come up and when we receive that bread and when we take that juice and when we hear that liturgy that surrounds us, that feeling is God's grace. It's the understanding that God loves us. That by coming to this table, we have been a part of God's kingdom. We recognize our faults. We recognize our failures. And we'll get into all of that. But even more so, that it is not by anything that we do that identifies God's grace in our lives. But it is by what God offers freely to each and every one of us that we come forward to be a part of the kingdom and to receive what God offers through it. And so as we move through this series, I want you to think on that idea of grace. Because like I said, that's, the, that, that's like the foundation of this meal. That's, the, that's this little wooden part down here that's holding our table up. That's going to be key and crucial as we continue to journey through. And as we start next week with our liturgy and, and begin to work ourselves through the entire liturgy of communion, that we will begin to see the way in which that experience What is happening in communion is not based on anything we do, but is all based on God's grace for us. So I want you to contemplate how you experience God's grace, how you experience it both throughout your faith and within that meal of communion. Because as we work ourselves the rest of this way, that's going to be the language that is going to be able to help us be able to connect more deeply. And that is, the, that is the language that is offered to us through God to bring this renewed, this, this, this deeper understanding of what happens at this meal, of why it is a vital part of our practice as Christians, and why it is a vital part of our faith and how we live in this world. Amen. Amen. Amen.